Thank you for joining our expository Bible study at Truth Matters Church. Today we take a deep dive look into the opening of the first and second seals and the riders on the white and red horses as described in Revelation chapter 6. What we see is that the Old Testament is key to understanding this prophecy. Download the PDF slides for this study and others at truthmatterschurch.org. Here is Pastor Alex. So last week we concluded the final review of this journey. I would think concluding a review of two years worth of material in two months is pretty good. But that's what we accomplished these past couple of months. And for our final review last week, remember the setting of our study, we're in Revelation chapter 6, and at this point in the vision, we have our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ seen not only taking the book from his Father's hand, but now starting to break the sealed scroll. And the first four seals corresponds to four riders on different colored horses. And I want to ask us, who are these four riders riding on these four colored horses again? Who are they? Angels. And how did we find that answer? The Bible. We looked to Scripture. We went to Zechariah 1, and we saw a similar account there where he was visited by angels on different colored horses. And what we learn from Zechariah 1 and helping that help open up our understanding for Revelation 6 is that God sends angels to do his bidding. And that's precisely what's happening in Revelation chapter 6. These four riders on these four colored horses are, in fact, angels. And from our last week's learning, we learned and we looked at the first rider on the f- uh, riding on the first colored horse, a white horse and the first seal, and this rider had a bow. And when we looked at that, we, we learned that bow signifies war. And what was characteristic of this rider on this white horse was that a crown was given to him, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that today. And then John described that he went out conquering and to conquer. Literally, this first angel riding a white horse was given the task to go out conquering and to conquer. And then lastly, we learned where to place this first seal in its historical context. So this prophecy began to be in motion after the penning of this book. So sometime after, let's say, 95, 96 AD. But then this prophecy will also take us to the end. So it spans from 95, 96 AD until the end of the age. And here was that simple timeline. If we look at the book of Revelation as the prophecy, everything that's written is from that point forward. And it's not necessarily reserved to a certain period of time or epoch of time. In fact, it spans across. And there are some prophecies where it will apply at certain times in history, but once we start getting in our minds 
that prophecy transcends different epochs until its ultimate purpose and fruition, then we, I think we can start to grasp some of these visions. I do want to tie up some loose ends concerning these four riders on these four colored horses. And something that, as I was meditating on the passage and our learnings, our recent learnings, one of the things I want to at least bring before us is consider the geographic locations for these four riders on these four colored horses. Meaning, did the scripture give them a scope? And so I looked at these four riders on these four colored horses, and the answer is two riders were not given a geographic location, whereas two, two other riders were given a task, and let's say it's the earth. So like, for example, when we look at the first seal, the rider on the white horse, and the third seal, the rider on the black horse, there wasn't given a geographic location. They just said, like, for example, in, with the first seal, that this rider was summoned, he had a bow, a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering it to conquer. What? Just, it's just wide open. But when you get to the rider on the second horse, which we will be looking at today, we're going to see that he was uh, given a sword and he went out with his task and scope as the earth. The earth was more, is very, that's broad. That's more wide open. So for the seals that didn't have a geographic location, I'm inclined to say that that's by design. Well, how come seals two and four was say, said the earth, whereas the other two seals they didn't say anything at all? And because of that, I want to remind us of this principle, and it's something that we, sh we have in our minds now, pretty much should be almost embedded. Because one of our key learnings from our Daniel series and the study of the end times is centered around the punishment and discipline of God's chosen people. Remember, to the Jew first. To the Jew first. And that would include not only salvation, because if you even think about when our Lord arrived on the scene, he went to the Jew first. And then he had sheep that were not of this fold. So even their promised Messiah went to them first, and then the rest. And there's also this principle that judgment begins with the house of God first. And that would include Israel, I mean, more specifically Israel and then the church. But if we have this principle in mind, that God's dealings, and especially when it comes to prophetic judgments, it's to the Jew first. So sorry for someone who lives in Antarctica. <laughs> when we see these sealed judgments, you're not first. So with this in mind, and if it doesn't have a geographic location, I'm going to focus on the people of Israel, and if necessary, the land of Israel. And since the first seal didn't have a geographic location, I'm going to keep Israel in view. So when the first rider was given a bow and was crowned and went out conquering and to conquer, went conquering and to conquer Israel. That's where I'm going with this vision. Because the next seal says the earth. 
But then this one was silent. And it, because it's silent, I have the people in the land of Israel in focus. So with this, I have some updated examples of specific events where the people of Israel were conquered and subdued. And I asked specifically, can you give me some examples of when Israel was conquered and subdued, subjugated, subjugated, from, or from the, after the first century till now? And I want us to go through some of these. So here's 10. Uh, so what came up was, there was the medieval pogroms, and that was the 11th through 15th centuries. So throughout medieval Europe, Jews faced persecution and violence in the form of pogroms, organized violent attacks during times of social and economic unrest. And another example where the Jews or you know, Israel experienced some conquering or some subjugation, they experienced expulsion from England. King Edward I, he issued an edict of expulsion. He ordered that all the Jews um, out of England, and they weren't even allowed to return until the 17th century. And when you look at the Spanish Inquisition, and that's the 14th through 18th century, that led to the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492. Many fled into European countries, while others converted to Christianity to avoid persecution. So here are some already some examples where the people of Israel, even though they got their temple and they lost the Jewish-Roman War, you know, that 66 to, what, 73 A.D., it wasn't the end of them being conquered and subdued. They continued as a people even throughout the centuries and millennia and experiencing this being conquered and subdued. Uh, another example, that we have the... So in Eastern Europe, particularly the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the Cossack, Hetman, Bodhem, can't even say that, led a series of massacres against the Jews, resulting in significant loss of life. So here, in the 16th century, in this Chemlikniki uprising, Jews were being massacred. Uh, you get to the pogroms in the uh, Russian Empire in the 19th and 20th centuries. Jews in the Russian Empire, they faced violent pogroms, particularly in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And these were often associated with political unrest. And then there was also, they also experienced anti-Jewish sentiments. Then another one, Dry Dreyfus Affair, Captain Alfred Dreyfus, and this is the 18th, 19th century, a French Jewish officer was falsely accused of espionage, leading to a lengthy and public trial that exposed deep-seated anti-Semitic sentiments in French society. So some examples here, the Jews you know, experiencing anti-Semitism, that's a form of being subjugated, right? They're, they're, they're being singled out, and attacked as a people and as a nation. Where, where I'm really trying to get at, we're all familiar with this, the Holocaust. In 1933 to 1945, this is well documented in history. And there's even been you know, movies created about this. But there was a genocide perpetrated by Nazi Germany and its collaborators during World War II. Listen, six million Jews were massacred. Would you say that those six million Jews were conquered and subjugated? Yes. 
and we have the post-World War II anti-Semitism despite the horror of the Holocaust. Anti-Semitism persisted after World War II, and that included incidents such as the Kelsey pogrom in Poland in 1946, and it continued the spread of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. And then we have a couple more examples, the Soviet anti-Semitism, the Soviet Union, this is in the 1940s to 1980s, particularly under Joseph Stalin, engaged in anti-Semitic policies, including the persecution of Jewish intellectuals and the infamous doctor's plot in the late 1940s. And this is more relevant for us. We have the Arab and Israeli conflict. And since Israel was established as a nation in 1948, that, er that Arab-Israeli conflict escalated and at times been accompanied by anti-Semitic rhetoric and violence and that it was both in the Middle East and also in other parts of the world. So these are just some examples of what the people of Israel has experienced from that after the first century into more recent history. So my case in point is this rider on the white horse was given a task to conquer, to go out conquering and to conquer. It's basically saying, don't give the people of Israel too much rest and continue to carry out my bidding. So if we keep this principle in mind to the Jew first, if you ask me, this rider on the white horse, like for example, the Holocaust, who brought that about? I want to say this rider on the white horse had some, something to do with it. Might not be alone. There might be other angels involved, as we will see on the next rider. But certainly, this rider has been pretty busy. So with that in view, if we're saying, okay, where do we place this first seal in prophecy as far as this, uh, the great Olivet Discourse and all of the epics that we went through in that study, it would be right between the third and fourth epic. Again, it's after 95, 96 A.D., and I'm telling us, guys, this rider on the white horse, when that seal was broken, he's been working to this day. You can even say this latest, the war between Hamas and Israel, who contributed to that? This rider on the white horse, because that was his task. And he's continuing to carry it out. So that was a summary of our learnings last week. And at least this is something that I had to break out of my mind because I had a dispensational view. Dispensational meaning, you know, God operates in certain dispensations in history. And as far as revelation goes, that means that, okay, there's this seven-year tribulation period, so it was hard for me to not look outside of seven years when we get to revelation look, I'm showing us through the scripture, no. And where I'm, what I'm telling us is the book of Revelation is relevant to all churches of all time. Not just, oh, if you happen to be here at the end, here's what's going to happen. I mean, that's, part, that's what happens when you look at scripture and you put it in a box to fit your chart or to fit your theology or your view. Revelation isn't just at the end. Revelation has been in motion this whole time. It will come to an end. 
And these prophecies will come to a head, as we will see. So with that, are we ready to read our immediate text of the four horsemen? And then we'll continue this journey now and look into the second seal. And we will take it from the top there and exposit that. So I'll be reading Revelation 6, verses 1 through 8, and I'll be reading from the NES. John wrote, Then I saw, when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come, and another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hands, in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come, I looked and behold an ashen horse. And he who sat in it had the name death and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. So that's our passage, and we will look specifically on the second seal in Revelation 3. So let's look at that one more time and exposit it. John wrote there, when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come. And he, speaking of the person who broke the second seal, is the Lord Jesus. When he broke, and when we follow Revelation, again, it's in order, and it's sequentially, when he broke, this follows after the breaking of the first seal, so the vision continues to flow in sequence. So, so something to remind us of the setting. Remember, we had the throne. We had 24 thrones. We have the throne, the Father's throne. We have 24 thrones around the Father's throne. And before the throne, there are four living creatures. And, of course, on the 24 thrones are 24 elders. The four living creatures, each one is going to summon an angel. So the first living creature summoned the first angel, the rider on the white horse. When we get to verse 3, it says, and when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come. Now the second of the four living creatures made this summon and out came this other angel. We'll look at verse 4. And another, any another angel, a red horse went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given him. And if it's not clear, these four riders are four different beings, four different angels. That's why he says, and another, and even another horse. It was this time a red horse. 
a different angel. So here's the translation for verse 4. Another angel was summoned by the second living creature after the first angel was summoned by the first living creature, and this angel rode on a red horse. Now I want us to look at the characteristics of this second rider on a red horse. He was granted to take peace from the earth. We'll look at that. That men would slay one another. Look at that and a great sword was given him. So these are unique characteristics to this angel. So let's look at he was granted to take peace. Granted is didomai or didomi, and it means given. So in context, this angel was literally given authority to take peace. And remember earlier as I was talking about geography, this vision said to take peace from the earth. So this already tells us this isn't just limited to the people and land of Israel. It's outside of them. And if, I don't think for us we really need to belabor the point what peace is, but peace is the opposite of war. It's the freedom of disturbance. There's no war going on or there's an end of a war. There's a peace. So to take peace is the opposite. You're causing disturbances. You're causing rumors of wars. And as a result, it's starting new wars or even continuing former ones. That's what it means for this angel when this angel was given authority to take peace. Now I want to ask us a question. How does this play out on earth? What Here's a hint. What human institution has authority on earth to declare war? Government. Nations and kingdoms. They're governed. There's a ruler. So this angel was given authority to take peace from the earth by causing disturbances and conflicts between nations and kingdoms resulting in new wars and the removal of nations and kingdoms and the rise of other nations and kingdoms. That's what this angel was given authority to do. Now let's look at the next characteristic of this angel that men would slay one another. And I want to say this, that men, do you know in some respects that we're just pawns? We're just pawns under the, you could even say, influence of angelic beings? Humans are just pawns. Yeah, we have a free will and we can exercise our will and do certain things but remember what the apostle paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood so we're struggling this in the greek there it's really like wrestling to save your life our souls are at stake and there's this turmoil in the heavenlies you can even say the enemy of our soul wants to increase his number among God's creation of man. So here, this angel was given authority to not only take peace from the earth so that it would bring about this result, that men would slay one another. Slay is sphazo. 
And it literally means to slaughter. And if you want to look at an example of Sfazo, when you look at its Old Testament equivalent, you know when Cain rose up and slew his brother Abel? He killed him with some sort of sword or knife, slayed him. And remember our rules of engagement, that men would slay, quite literally, one another. Meaning, yeah, can you shoot someone and kill them and they're slain? Well, yeah, but more literally and more appropriate, this is actually by a sword or some sort of sharp object. This angel was given authority to rise up nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom so that peace is taken from the earth and what happens is men are slaying one another. And this ties into the next description of this angel. A great sword was in the knife. I mean, it wasn't a gun. A great sword, a mega sword was given him. And from here, as I was putting this together, I was drawn to Ezekiel 21. Because in Ezekiel 21, sword is mentioned several times, but in prophetic judgment. And the context of Ezekiel 21 is Ezekiel was commanded to speak and prophesy against the sanctuaries and the land of Israel. And this passage also turns out to make mention of a key figure who will be here at the end times. So I want us to take a look at Ezekiel 21 and show you why I was drawn here. So let's look at Ezekiel 21. We'll pick it up in verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem and speak against the sanctuaries and prophesy against the land of Israel. And say to the land of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you, and I will draw my sword out of its sheath and cut off from you the righteous and the wicked. Because I will cut off from you the righteous and the wicked, therefore my sword will go forth from its sheath against all flesh from south to north. Thus all flesh will know that I, the Lord, have drawn my sword out of its sheath. It will not return to its sheath again. And I want to pause here. Who is the Lord? Capital L-O-R-D. Who is this? Our Father is describing Himself as having a sword on his sheath and drawing it. Remember when I said our Lord Jesus is no joke? Well, even more so, our Father is no joke. He's a warrior himself, Yahweh. Pick it up in verse 6. As for you, son of man, groan with breaking heart and bitter grief, groan in their sight. And when they say to you, why do you groan? You shall say, because of the news that is coming, and every heart will melt, all hands will be feeble, every spirit will faint, and all knees will be weak as water. Behold, it comes and it will happen, declares the Lord God. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy and said, Thus says the Lord, a sword, a sword sharpened and polished, sharpened to make a slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. Or shall we rejoice the rod of my son, despising every tree? 
It is given to be polished that it may be handled. The sword is sharpened and polished to give it to the hand of the slayer. Cry and wail, son of man, for it is against my people. It is against all the officials of Israel. They are delivered over to the sword with my people. Therefore, strike your thigh, for there is a testing. And what if even the rod which despises will be no more, declares the Lord God. You therefore, son of man, prophesy and clap your hands together and let the sword be doubled the third time, the sword for the slain. It is the sword for the great one slain which surrounds them that their hearts may melt and many fall at all their gates. I know this is, this is prophetic language here and a lot of this we don't understand, but what is happening here is the Lord is pronouncing judgment against his people and the officials, ordering the slaughtering of all of them from south to north because he is burning in anger against them. Let's pick it up, continue on. Verse 16, show yourself sharp, go to the right, set yourself, go to the left, wherever your edge is appointed. I will also clap my hands together and I will appease my wrath. I, the Lord, have spoken. And then after Ezekiel addresses the king of Babylon in verses 18 through uh, 23, I want us to jump to verse 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord, because you have made your iniquity to be remembered and that your transgressions are uncovered so that all your deeds, your sins appear, because you have come to remembrance, you will be seized with the hand. And you, O slain wicked one, the prince of Israel, whose day has come in the time of the punishment of the end. Thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. This will no longer be the same. Exalt that which is low and abase that which is high. A ruin, a ruin, a ruin, I will make it. This also will be no more until he comes who is right and I will give it to him. And that last part, our Lord is saying, his chosen one, the Lord Jesus Christ, He's going to come who is right and he will give, him, give it to him. I know that was a mouthful. But this passage was a prophetic judgment from God himself against the people of Israel and their officials. And there are several things that aren't clear to me in this passage, but what drew me to this passage was Ezekiel 21. It shares three similar elements from seals one and two. We have sword, slaughter, and crown. In Ezekiel, the people of Israel were given to slaughter because the Lord's wrath was against them. And God likened this to him drawing out a sword, and it says never to put it back. So this prophetic judgment, Yahweh himself takes out the sword, and he's not putting it back. And he has spoken, he's saying this is going to happen and this is going to come. All of Israel, including their officials, were given over to be slaughtered because of their sins. And in fact, Ezekiel 21.11 says, the sword was given to the hand of the slayer. So presumably, God used an angel to execute the judgment and to carry out his decree. But in this prophecy we're introduced to a figure, and I want us to look at it again in verse 
24 and following. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your iniquity to be remembered in that your transgressions are uncovered so that in all your deeds, your sins appear because you have come to remembrance, you will be seized by the hand. And here's where I want us to focus on. He goes, and you, O slain, wicked one, the prince of Israel, whose day has come In the time of the punishment of the end, thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. This will no longer be the same. Exalt that which is low and abase that which is high. A ruin, a ruin, a ruin, I will make it. This also will be no more until he who comes who is right and I will give it to him. So in verse 25, we were introduced to this key figure and he's called the Prince of Israel. Could be translated a ruler of Israel. And this prophecy has a time marker. See that? In the time of the punishment of the end. Remember from our Daniel series? So if you look at from the time Israel was taken into Babylonian captivity, even to this day and forward, they're still under God's punishment and disciplining but there's this period towards the end of his punishment called the period of the end of the indignation. That is the time of the punishment of the end. So here we have a prince of Israel whose day has come in the time of the punishment of the end. Ezekiel is introducing us to a key figure who's going to be here at the end times, and he's going to be a prince or a ruler of Israel. And he's wearing something. Remove the turban and take off the crown, a turban and a crown. I can't help, and then I was drawn to the, highly pri- the high priestly attire in Exodus 29, and I want to take us there. So God instructing Moses, we'll pick it up in verse 4, then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of the meeting and wash them with water. You shall take the garments and put on Aaron the tunic and the robe and the, of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put a holy crown on the turban. Then you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. So part of the priestly attire is a turban and a crown. This is part of the high priest attire. Then, I'm like, okay, I'm trying to layer in everything we're learning. Then I'm drawn to, but drowned. I'm drawn to, I was drowning in the scripture, Daniel's 70-week prophecy. Because he too speaks of a key end times figure. And I want to remind us of this. Daniel 9, beginning in verse 26 Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah, and I'm putting Jesus to help us know who's in view in prophecy, will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with the flood. Even to the end, there will be war, desolations are determined. And he, the prince who is to come, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. 
But you see here what's highlighted here? The prince who is to come. And in verse 27, he, the prince who is to come, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. When we look at Ezekiel 21 and Daniel 9, so in Ezekiel 21, we have a wicked end times ruler of Israel wearing a turban and a crown. In Daniel 9, he makes mention of a prince who is to come, also an end times figure. And this leads me to a deduction. I think they're speaking about the same thing here. They're seeing this prince of Israel, this ruler of Israel, the prince who is to come at the end. Ezekiel saw it. Daniel saw it. And we're going to start making some deductions. I'm inclined to believe that this key figure in Ezekiel 21 and Daniel 9 is speaking of the same figure, and I'm calling him Antichrist. He comes before Anti-God. Remember, I'm starting to make distinctions of key figures at the end times. Because look, I'm going to go back to Daniel 9.27. There's two figures in this prophecy. There is he, the prince who is to come, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, the prince who is to come, or Antichrist, will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. And then look, on the wing of abominations will come one, someone else. And I'm calling him anti-God because he's the one who's going to make desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out the one who makes desolate. So we have anti-Christ and we have anti-God who comes after him. And this is all in Daniel's 70-week prophecy. But as far as the prince who is to come, this prince of Israel, this ruler of Israel, making some deductions, okay, this is the Antichrist. And here leads me to a further deduction, that the Antichrist may very well be a high priest. I don't know if you thought about this who arrives on the scene in Israel with ruling authority. With such authority, Antichrist will make a seven years covenant with the many. Of course, Israel is included. But in the middle of that covenant, he will renegade on that covenant and then turn against Israel. And then Anti-God comes after him. So how do I think Antichrist will look like? Something like that. You're like, wait, it's not the Pope. Well, does the Pope wear a turban and a crown? If he starts to wear a turban and a crown, then I'll put him in play. Now, I, I looked at, asked chat, and I tried to Google, like, what other figures wear a turban and a crown? And there's been some conflicting, but I'm not sure if the Ottoman Empire, the Caliph, had a turban and, and a crown, or I'm not sure the extent of it, but whoever this key figure, this end times figure. He's going to be wearing a turban and a crown and he's going to orchestrate a seven-year holy covenant. I'm inclined to say it's probably going to look like this, like one of the high priests. If you think about it, the high priest is who put our Lord to death. Caiaphas was the high priest that year. And he was the one who was brought before the Sanhedrin and before the high priest in his mock trial. It's kind of replaying itself. Someone's going to come as a high priest, claim to be a high priest, and will have some sort of governing authority to even orchestrate a covenant. That's, that's how the Jews can trust him. You're one of us. 
Yeah. And I'm trying to layer in all of our learnings and seeing, okay, where is it leading us? And here's where it led. And to the last description of this angel that may would slay, uh, slay one another. So after taking peace, men will quite literally slay one another with a sword. With this description, now I'm drawn to the great Olivet Discourse. I know I'm jumping all over the place, but I'm trying to layer in our learning so that we're, we're, we're building and moving forward. <laughs> Are you still with me? Okay. Because what is characteristic of this rider on the red horse was he was given authority to take peace from the earth and that would result in men slaying one another. And I asked the question, okay, Lord, did you speak about this? And he absolutely did. And we're familiar with this. And I want to go to Mark's account. Brother will betray brother to death. This happened even at the times of the apostles, but this is something that is also taking us to the end. Our Lord said, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child and children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. More deductions, okay? So if Ezekiel 21, Daniel 9, Revelation 6, and Mark 13, if they're all speaking of the same end times event because they sure are strong synergies, then what our Lord just told us in the, all of it, on his discourse, he gave us more details of the end of Israel's indignation and the end times. Peace will be taken from the earth. Israel will be betrayed in the middle of that covenant and they will be killed by the sword. Family will turn against family in the middle of that covenant forward and they will be killed by the sword. Israel will be slain or either taken into captivity. The land will end up being desolate. And this will be done in the name or authority of Christ. So if someone's coming as a high priest in the place of or in the authority of Messiah, that's what's going on. So here's a translation. This angel was given authority to take peace from the earth. This will result in the slaughtering of one another beginning in Israel. Furthermore, a false Christ an anti, I call him Antichrist. He will claim divine authority. He will orchestrate a holy covenant among several nations for seven years, but in the middle of that covenant will turn against it and Israel, and the slaughter begins. But remember, this angel was given a great sword, and the scope was from the earth. When we continue in this study, once the Jews have pretty much been exterminated, or taken into captivity, then we will see that the dragon will go after her, uh, her other offspring, meaning this will eventually include Christians. So I want us to close now. What we're starting to see, or at least what I'm starting to see, and hopefully you're starting to see, is that these four horsemen are working in concert with one another. In fact, seal one, bow, Seal, two, sword, they both signify war. I did a word search and I looked at bow and sword. And when you go to war, war, especially in the ancient of times, you would go with your bow or your sword and you would use whatever which one was appropriate. And I, I want to use this analogy. 
How many of us have watched wrestling, WWF, WWE? No? There was, there was tag team, tag team partners. So, it, you know, the way it would work is, let's say there was a wrestling match, and it's a tag team match, so it's two, two against two, but only one goes in the ring at a time, and then you have to tag the other one to switch so that the other one comes in. I'm starting to see that the rider on the white horse and the rider on the red horse, they're like a tag team. The rider on the white horse goes first, conquers and subdues Israel, and then the red horse comes and results in the slaughtering of men. So both were summoned and both rode out to bring about what was written in the first and second seals. Do you remember last week, I mentioned an interpretive challenge concerning the first rider on the white horse. Because John says that a crown was given him. And the interpretive challenge was, was it just given to the angel and he wore it? Or was it given it to him that he will crown someone else with it and it'll manifest itself on the earth? Well, with our deduction from Ezekiel 21, Daniel 9, including our reference of Exodus 29, I'm saying that yes to both. That this angel was given a crown and that it will manifest itself when someone is crowned and leads me to say that this first seal prophecy could very well be pointing to this. That's where it's leading. That all this conquering and subduing of Israel, the subjugation of Israel from the time that they were conquered as a nation, back even all the way back to, well, first, you know, 70 AD, and then once they've tried to kind of gather themselves as a people and disperse and go to wherever it is that they're going, that this rider on the white horse, as we saw in those examples earlier, is still involved in punishing and disciplining them for their rebellion and for killing Christ. But that this rider on the white horse will continue to do his bidding until the rider on the red horse crowns someone that fits this description with a turban and a crown. So whoever, whoever is going to arise as a ruler of Israel, as a prince of Israel, and wear a turban and a crown, we are at the end of the period or towards the end of the period of the indignation. So when we look at what we've, lo- what we've learned from our Daniel series, Remember, it's all centered around what's going on in the Middle East. Once we see a third temple, once we see them, Judaism in full effect again, and especially if you see a a great high priest wearing a turban and a crown and has some sort of ruling authority, the word of God has spoken. We are towards the end. We're at the precipice of the end and the coming and the revealing of our Lord from heaven. So this could very well be as far as the construction of the third temple and when Judaism is in full effect, that this prince of Israel, presumably a high priest, will say, hey, let's unify. Let's get into this covenant. Israel, do you. Build your temple. Do your dead works. But then in the middle of that covenant, he's going to turn against it. And then after him will come 
I call him anti-God, the man of lawlessness who exalts and raises himself above every so-called thing, as the Apostle Paul said, that you know, above all gods, he's going to put himself at the top. And this rider and the red horse will do this until all these things come to pass. So when you look, when you kind of look at these rider on the red horses, when you look at their activity has spanned after 95, 96 AD until the end, they're, they're doing their bidding until ultimately all that the word has spoken of and prophesied comes to pass. And that is no different with these riders on these horses. They will continue to be busy until all that was written, prophesied in all of scripture is fulfilled. So that concludes our study for this week. And the next time we get together, we will look at the third seal and the rider on the black horse. So I look forward to seeing what we're going to continue to learn on this journey. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for listening today as we took a deep dive look at the opening of the first and second seals and the riders of the white and red horses as described in Revelation chapter 6. If you would like to hear any of our past studies leading up to this point in Revelation, they are all posted for free on our website, truthmatterschurch.org, or just simply look us up on Sermon Audio. And while you're at it, we encourage you to check out our free audio stream of Pastor Alex's teaching, Christian audiobooks, devotionals, sermons, and so much more at truthmattersradio.com. Again, that is truthmattersradio.com. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.